0: This week's episode of the Berman Hour Podcast is proudly brought to us by New Wave and Flow Steak Coffee. Go to newwave.co slash Berman and get 10% off your order. That's N-O-O-W-A-V-E dot C-O slash B-E-R-M-A-N. It's coffee that's blended with raw cacao and L-theanine, which is an amino acid. You don't taste it. You don't smell it. You don't see it, but it's in there, and it's in there because it naturally reduces your stress and anxiety. This is perfect For people who love coffee but sometimes are susceptible to having the shakes or the jitters or the increased blood pressure and anxiety from having too much caffeine, this is wonderfully balanced, tastes delicious, and this will become your new favorite go-to coffee at home. Trust me. NewWave.co slash Berman. Get 10% off. Give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? You die from it, you're not going to die from this. Come on, just try it. NewWave.co slash Berman saves you 10%, and we get a little bit of a kickback for production costs here at the Berman Hour Podcast. So thanks again to New Wave. Thank you for creating coffee for creative people like you and I. And if you're listening, most likely like you too. NewWave.co slash Berman. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Berman Hour Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Berman. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't yet, please today take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the Berman Hour Podcast. It doesn't matter if you're listening on Deezer or Tidal or Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you leave a five star rating, you write a few nice words and you subscribe. That really helps this little engine that could podcast, the Berman Hour podcast. And we have a great podcast this week. I had the pleasure of speaking to Heidi Vanderlee from the band Early Riser. Early Riser released a new record last month on AF Records called Vocations, which is fantastic. It's a breath of fresh air, a great punk rock record to have this far into this seemingly never-ending pandemic and quarantine. We talk about the record with Heidi. We talk about a mutual admiration and love for The Hold Steady. We talk about her work as a publicist and what that looks like in the year 2020. She's a publicist at a company that she started called Positive JMPR, which wait, now that I think about it is actually a Hold Steady reference. I didn't put that together, but now I'm putting it together here on on the spot. So kudos to Heidi for that. But this is just a great conversation kind of about the state of being a creative person who's politically minded this day and age, what that means, what that entails, and the work that goes into it. So enjoy this interview. Be sure to check out Early Riser's new record. Again, it's called Vocations, and it is fantastic. I don't know why I just said that like I was from St. Paul. It must be all the Hold Steady influence. There's a lot of Hold Steady references and then discussion in this pod, which makes it really fun. So enjoy my conversation with Heidi Vanderlee from Positive Jam PR and Early Riser right now on the Berman Hour Podcast, and I'll see you on the other side. Let's go. Politicized is what I'm saying.
1: Right. I mean, and unfortunately, it is so politicized because there's been such a moral, just the issue of morality has been attached to it in a way that both sides of the political spectrum, I mean, it's been weaponized, essentially. Um, So, you know, when... It shouldn't have been historic for Joe Biden to say, I am proud of my son um, for overcoming his addiction on national television. That shouldn't have been a huge deal, but it is because yeah. up until, you know, a little while ago, not only did we have a president who ridiculed addiction, even though it's rife in his family, um, people still really see a direct line between like you're a good person or you're a bad person, depending on where you are in terms of addiction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just how not have, how it works. <laughs> how, uh, yeah, how long have you been sober? If you don't mind me asking.
1: Um, it'll be so. It's about nine and a half years. So I stopped in. Stopped drinking in like October of 2011. So great! Congratulations. That's great. Hey, thanks. Yeah, it's wild. It flew. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
0: did Did you develop a new thing? Like, did you become hmm. somebody that's really into coffee, or did you become somebody that really started to love to cook, or? Uh, it, Anything else? Did did something positive sprout up from that beyond like having control of your life back and all of those other good things?
1: I mean, I think it would actually be that last part, having agency over my life kind of, uh, you know, replaced um, what I spent most of my time on. I mean, it. Yeah. I mean, I think I care way more about seltzer than I used to. Um, Like (laughs) I get very excited about seltzer flavors and when yeah. when alcoholic seltzer started becoming a thing i was like that's mine stop it you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know i think yeah seltzer maybe maybe being more interested in like fancy no- mocktails but like i i didn't i don't think i replaced it with anything ex- other yeah. than just like being here all the time
0: <laughs> yeah well that's 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 wonderful i'm yeah. curious i I've, i saw that you did some acting work and you also play music. You're also a publicist. I wanted to talk to you from your band because the new record is fantastic. Thanks. But I, I and we'll get into that. You're very welcome. But I wanted to talk to you because I'm always interested in the point of view that publicists have. Sure. Because it's such an ever changing world, and it's such a critical part of kind of the existence and the the traditional album cycle that we understand. Either consciously or subconsciously, as consumers and and fellow artists, and you're kind of in that bubble. You're you're kind of like an interesting spot on a Venn diagram where you have had all these experiences, and your hand in all of these these different pots, and you seem to kind of hold it together pretty well. <laughs> but I'm curious, like, did uh, a love for kind of working in music or playing music or acting? Did one of them come first for you?
1: Well, one thing that I think to answer your question, I originally was a writer. I was a, and I've always played music. I've played music since I was a kid. I think that I saw myself as becoming, I saw myself becoming like, honestly, I wanted to pretty much literally work at NPR. That was what I wanted to do (laughs) when I was in college. And then I was a music journalist for a minute. Um, There was a really great site called Tiny Mixtapes, and I wrote for them for a few years. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, RIP. They were great. It
0: was Um, great.
1: Yeah. And then, so something that I think allows me to span those worlds a little more easily than others might is that most of the people that I represent as a publicist are not musicians necessarily. Like, they might also play music, but a lot of them are comedians and filmmakers. I uh, represent a lot of podcasts right now, which is like not really surprising. (laughs) Um, But I will say that doing PR for my own band's album was terrifying in a new way. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I knew it would be like, I was 100% aware that that would be the situation, but we, Kiri and I talked and we thought basically, uh, This is such a weird media landscape, and at some point, we will work with a wonderful music publicist. We worked with Debbie on our first album, which was great, and we just ended up saying, This is going to be such a strange release. That and also, like, in terms of budget, like, we don't have it, (laughs) we definitely don't have it. So that's why I said I would do it. It seemed like a natural, the whole record was DIY. I mean, Kiri drew and painted all of the art. Nicole did the layout. I did the PR. Mikey played drums and was Mikey. Um, he <laughs> was Mikey. I do it. I do like being a person that also makes art or music or whatever. I don't know. It feels funny to be like, I make art. Oh, because you are. I a- You're an artist. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm making a face like, uh-huh. But, um, <laughs> but I think that, it is helpful because I understand how personal it is to put your thing out in the world and be like, "eh, <laughs> do you like it?" You know. Um, and my clients hire me to do that for them because it is terrifying to do for yourself. Or I don't think that's the only reason they hire me, but I know it's definitely one of the reasons. That's that's
0: why I hire publicists for sure because yeah. I guess at the end of the day, it's like a time thing and it's an ego thing. Like if you don't have the time to do it, or you know, a time and an ego thing, and also just like talent. You know, I'm working with a great publicist now who is very good and is mm-hmm. way better, th- you know, than I am. And certainly, Deb Pressman is like, yeah, f- fantastic as as well. And I couldn't do as good a job as the two of them or or as you. But I, I mean, also I- don't want to put myself out there and like. You know, it's like if you put your band out there and a site that you really were hoping was going to do the premiere or something and they don't, then it's like, well,
1: they literally said no to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I yeah, that is that is extremely true. And I will say that I think I'm doing an OK job, but I'm not a music publicist. I I can play as one I can kind of do it ad hoc but like being a music publicist is a whole other thing and it's it's a lot of work it's really really hard it is part of the reason I don't do music publicity full-time is because it's just so hard (laughs) because and you have a point like when you said the time commitment is another factor like that's that is the other thing is like publicists not only do they spend time talking to everyone all day like their email inbox is just constantly full but you're also reading everything all the time and figuring out who writes for where now. And, you know, is this podcast still a thing? Um, everything's always changing. So you not only have to know who to talk to, you have to know where they are. Are they still writing about music? It changes so quickly.
0: Yeah. I don't mean to sound like old man Berman here, but I, I just have to say this because I'm, I'm curious. When I lived in New York city And I would just kind of casually go out for drinks with people like Debbie Pressman and meeting people. And maybe we met at that point in 2007, 2008-ish. You would kind of learn who was at what spot, who was interning at what label. And and everybody that was the same age was all kind of coming up in the music industry in in different ways. Mm -hmm. But there was a, a connectivity to it. And it was the beginning of what we now understand as social media. Like, yeah, MySpace existed and Friendster existed, but it wasn't the same it didn't seem to have the same networking capacity that everything has now. Yeah. In this year that we've been presumably not going out as much, I know I haven't gone out at all, have you found that it's had a, a change on whether or not you're able to kind of meet new people who are in the industry that you would just run into? Or had you kind of moved past that? And I don't mean specifically at bars, but I just mean going to shows or uh, going to concerts or, or- going to live podcasts when they happen or, or anything. Because to me, that was what made living in New York so special was that yeah I could be emailing those people during the day, but then I would see them later that night a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, it is definitely an absence that I feel because a lot of my job involves going to shows and comedy shows, podcast tapings, like yeah. concerts. I hadn't really thought about it, honestly, because I am so extremely online. (laughs) But there are definitely personal connections that I've made that only happened in person and then ended up becoming other things later. And I I don't think I really appreciated that until this year because I'm lucky that I've been in this for a minute, so I know a lot of people. But I do feel that there's something I'm missing by not being able to see these people in person. Like even just like this one manager I work with, we go do karaoke. <laughs> like <laughs> I really miss doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even if we're not really talking about business or whatever, like it's nice to be friends with the people that you're working with.
0: No, it's a foundation to a relationship that's beyond just the work that you're doing.
1: Yeah. Like we but, actually enjoy hanging out.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, that helps, you know, that's true. It's, it's nurturing. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing your own firm at this point, right? Positive JPR is yours.
1: Yep. That's me and Debbie and Deanna.
0: Yeah. At what point did you decide that you didn't want to work with other people or for other people and you just wanted to do it yourself?
1: Hmm. I was really lucky to work somewhere that allowed me to pretty much learn how to be a publicist. I hadn't really had much experience before I started working there as an assistant first.
0: When you started doing publicity, were you? did you find that you gravitated towards doing music or doing comedy or were you just kind of doing a little bit of everything to feel it out and then find your own footing?
1: So where I was working at the time had taken on a comedy roster that they needed help with. Yeah. So my first experience just doing PR in general was with comedians and that was just kind of what the firm was specializing in at the time. So that's how, that's really where I started. And then, and I always kind of knew I didn't really want to do music publicity just because I knew how difficult it was from having been friends with music publicists for so long. And then just watching the way that, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but music has changed a lot. Um, There's way less money for artists than there ever used to be. Um, And you know, the media landscape is such that many writers are not getting paid a living wage and are freelancing everywhere just to make ends meet. So, and so a lot of those publications also just don't have the same influence that they used to. It's a, it's a tougher landscape than it was at the time. Yeah. Or even in 2014, it was already pretty tough. So I always felt like
0: it was tough just because it was always changing too. It was like by the time your next record cycle was ready to begin, like the landscape was different. And so if you were working in my experience anyway if i was working with a publicist that was still kind of operating in a 2006 mindset in 2016 that that could be really problematic and and you know like you're problematic in, in so much as we're spending a lot of money that we don't really have to run a campaign that's operating in a
1: outmoded and outdated way of doing things i mean it's literally a different world like between yeah. i would say that the difference between like Probably the difference between 2006 and 2016 is like as much change as you could possibly see happen. But was it like
0: that in in areas that you were working in and in comedy as well as it was in music?
1: Comedy is... I'm fortunate to work in comedy PR because comedy can be so many things. It can be political in nature. It can be, obviously, it's funny. It can be feminist. It can be even you know, talking about religious views. Um, There's just so many different ways that you can talk about it. And therefore the people who write about it are not, there's no real, there are people who specifically specialize in comedy, like who like cover a comedy beat for the New York times, for example, they have some folks that always write about comedy there, Mm -hmm. but most other places, if your comedy project or your comedian or the album or whatever Uh, appeals to has a story that appeals to somebody it could really get written about anywhere you know like with music I think that you're a little more limited in
0: where you can land yeah
1: where you can land yeah but you know great publicists that I've seen just you know they find an angle about the band or whatever and they go to a a non-traditional outlet and that often works great so it's just I think it is just harder I think it's just harder just by the nature of what music is.
0: Sure. Does Do you think that your work doing publicity in a world that's not music offers you a unique perspective when you're with Early Riser, when you're with the band and you're just kind of formulating plans? Presumably yeah. during during normal times, not you know this past year where it was a whole lot different. But as you guys were getting ready to put this record together, I, I imagine that still the experience is enriching to what you guys are trying to, to accomplish, right?
1: Sure. Yeah. One thing I do a lot with my clients is I try to manage their expectations. And so essentially in this situation, I had to treat myself as a client and manage my own expectations. And also when, you know, Carrie and I talked about PR for this record, I said, you know, this, I don't know what's going to happen with this at all. Um, it, It was helpful to remember that I have sometimes had the most brilliant project ever. And because the person isn't well known enough or it's just bad timing or something like it has nothing to do with whether or not the thing is good. Sometimes it's just not the right time. Or maybe I'm not the right publicist. I don't know. There's a million reasons why something brilliant could not get written about. And not that I'm calling myself brilliant, but I'm saying, like, the fact that, like, a specific site did not write about our record does not make me feel like our record is not good. We hear from people, I mean, at this point, like, every time a random person tweets at us or writes to us to say that they enjoy the record, like, that is the best to me. That's what matters. I have two cats. I can see him. And, and one of them... Is doing this. I don't... I'm sorry. There's going to be, like, jingling, probably, in the background. Oh, that's
0: fine. No, I'm that's sorry. fine. I, have a, I, I will have a snoring dog probably in about 20 minutes, for sure. Well, let's talk about the record. Was this something that y'all had been working on before we went into quarantine? Or how does the timeline kind of match up? Because it's been a while. It's been a minute since the last record. The last one was 2017. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. This one... um we also took kind of forever to finish it. Uh, it was done and ready to go in 2019. And then... Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> done, ready to go in 2019. Or no, sorry. Let me back up. No, we finished recording it in 2019. And then the whole mixing, mastering, record, label art, like we had some stops and starts with that. And then eventually that's why Kiri ended up just painting everything, which was cool. <laughs> But that all took another year to kind of get together. So by the time we were like, all right, you know, it was, I want to say around December, maybe, that we were feeling ready. And yeah. then 2020 happened. And uh, Chris at AF was like, Chris Stowe at AF was like, yeah, so we're going to hold off on putting out anything for a while. And we were like, that's fair. Yes, that's totally cool. <laughs> so we've been sitting yeah. on this for a while.
0: It's kind of been an interesting ride for everybody. I'm curious and there's so much that we lost in this past year. I'm curious if you have anything that you feel like you gained. Even if it's simple as perspective. What did you gain in this year that we didn't I gained that you a lot. didn't have before. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I do feel like I gained a lot. I mean, on a personal level, it was a pretty tough year like for most people. I think you know like my twenty-one-year-old cat died, like right at the beginning, which was horrible. Oof. And then I got like really sick at one point, like I had to have like emergency surgery, and it was just a lot happened in terms yeah. of like my personal life, and obviously being away from everybody, and and also just dealing with a pandemic is really tough. But bless you, <laughs> my cat just sneezed. <laughs> um, I think that I gained perspective in terms of how I want to spend my time I've had more time I used to pack my life so tightly like every day was scheduled so tightly that and I didn't even realize that that was what I was doing until we all had to stop and when I don't remember what day it was in New York it was a weekday where they were just like we're shutting down everything's shutting down we're and it was like very sudden and I remember feeling scared obviously but also relieved because I was like oh I don't have to do my life at the insane clip it's been going at for years and so I think that what I gained was respect for my own time really um you know, spending time with people that I really want to spend time with, be friends with people who I really want to be friends with, and also just be okay with not doing everything all the time, saying no to stuff sometimes. You know, a lot of us had to spend more time with ourselves than we ever have. And I already worked from home, so that wasn't a huge uh, difference. But uh, this is a long way of saying that I gained the perspective that it's okay to not be so scheduled out and I don't really want to go back ever.
0: That's great, I loved that and I, I I believe that when we talked in email when we were setting this up you said that you weren't the primary songwriter in the band, is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Okay, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire anyway, <laughs> uh, but in a polite way because yeah. the record's called Vocations
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think what you said kind of ties into what seems to be what the lead single which is the title track is about mm-hmm. where even though you spilled the beans now and you said that, yeah, this was written and pretty much done before this all hit, but we just oh, yeah. had to hold to it for a year. We can just pretend like that's not the case, or we <laughs> can just apply what we learned in this year to the fact that, you know, songs are living, breathing things, and they can mean something different in April of 2021 than they did in April of 2020. I'm curious, you know, it, it's kind of as if there's a common thread throughout the record about no longer wanting to accept being treated poorly or no longer wanting to accept the fact that what you're doing isn't of value or isn't promoting honest good. And the lead mm-hmm. single really kind of starts the record off with that that point in, quite poignantly. Do you think that that was something that kind of a, a thread through the record that as you were putting it together, it was kind of, we don't like this version of normal and, and we want a new version of normal that's better, whether it be in the the scene you know air quotes whatever mm-hmm. the hell that means anymore <laughs> or just in the general communities that we choose to align ourselves within right can you yeah. speak to that aspect of, of the record full knowing that that you didn't write the whole <laughs> thing but just from your perspective as a bandmate and as a as a friend and someone who, who cares you know
1: yeah I mean I think that I can speak about it to some authority because Kiri and I have been friends for a long time we also have had lives that have mirrored each other's in terms of amount of activity and what we're doing yeah the way that she and i met was we were organizing in a feminist collective in like 2011 and uh we were booking shows for um we would have these benefit shows every month which looking back is insane you know four band bill get a get a non just it was and it was a lot every month that's awesome. We had those benefit shows at a great venue called Death by Audio, which is sadly not here anymore. R.I.P. R.I.P. So I can speak to it in that Kiri and I both have always had day jobs. Both of us have. And then four other things happening at the same time because we weren't doing necessarily in our day jobs what we really wanted to be doing. So that's Mm -hmm. where that like, what do you do? What do you really do thing comes from. Because whenever somebody I think this may be true more for Kiri than it is for me, because at this point I've sort of built a job that has more to do with my life. I think the the point of this song is that it doesn't really make sense to ask someone what they do and if they answer with their occupation, like that's not a complete answer. It just doesn't really make sense to ask people that. Yeah. Because at least in the circles that we're in, it doesn't necessarily reflect anything about your personality or how you actually like to spend your time. Lots of people do jobs that they don't really want to do. So they can do the other thing that they really like doing.
0: Yeah. You you mentioned something about this, this collective and what was the name of it again?
1: It was called Permanent Wave.
0: (laughs) Oh, cool. Were you always really into kind of the activism side of this punk rock subculture? Or was that something that you gravitated to later?
1: I wasn't. I was a feminist or I was a women's studies minor in college, but like I don't think I really got involved in any sort of activism until about 2011 uh, okay. in a real way. Now, of course, I've shifted more towards electoral politics, but it still is very much informed by my sort of foundation,
0: right? Right. my
1: foundational beliefs, which are that women are people and gender is a construct and you know, <laughs> reproductive care for all, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think that it evolved over time from just being kind of mad about stuff, which is very useful. Anger is extremely useful to how can I very specifically and not pragmatically, that's not the right word. How can I actually help? And instead of doing what I did in 2011, which was good and great. I mean, I loved what we did. I was proud of what we did. Now what I tend to do rather than starting my own thing is try to find someone else who's already doing the work that I want to be doing and help them. It's also just much easier to do that and not try to have your own thing. (laughs) More useful, I think. I feel
0: as if the older that we get, if we choose to remain within the subculture in whatever context and whatever schedule that we're able to do it, there seems to be kind of a definite split where you have people that just want to essentially ride a wave of nostalgia and just enjoy the, the music for what the music represents to them. And then you have people who try to f- figure out a more nuanced way of involving themselves into a means of creating something better because now we have the knowledge. Some of us have a little bit more equity and a little bit more money in the bank so we can help in ways that we couldn't when we, then we, you know, Like when I was living in the fucking McKibben Lofts. Oh my
1: God, you lived in the McKibben Lofts.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) But like I I didn't have my life together at that point. Like I didn't, you know what I mean? So now it's like I I, I still don't have my life together, but at least I have an idea of, all right, if I'm going to do a a digital release for this single, I know how to put together a campaign where I can raise Mm -hmm. some money for a nonprofit and I'm not just doing something solely for me. I I know – we all know kind of better ways of of being selfless and of being better organized, and so I find it inspiring by what you said because it's not something that immediately came to you. Like it comes to some people when they get involved in punk rock and hardcore, it's like immediately they understand that it's predicated on helping people. Mm-hmm. For other people, that that needs to be nurtured and that needs to to grow a little bit. And I think that that divide only became a lot more it's sharpened, I, I guess, in this past year. Since we've all had to really pick and choose what's important to us and what we're able to participate in, you know.
1: I'm trying to remember. I think it was. Oh my gosh! I can't. I think of his name from Rage Against the Machine, Tom Tom Morello. Morello. I forget exactly what happened, but he made some sort of extremely political statement, as he does, because he is Tom Morello. And then all these people were like, no, no longer a fan of yours. Go Trump. And it was like, the band is literally called Rage Against the Machine. What did you think the machine was? Like, (laughs) I mean, that's like a sort of a macro example. But I think a lot of this year did also kind of show... It showed me who some people really are. Absolutely. Yeah. For better or for worse. And I think that the ways in which I've been able to have music and comedy intersect with politics has, I mean, we're on Anti-Flag's label. Like they are, Anti-Flag has been doing this for a really long time. It is possible to be relevant and make people really happy with your music and also be extremely political, which they have always been. And it doesn't And unapologetic.
0: Unapologetic and it doesn't
1: I think that they are just as angry and just as it's not like they've softened, right? It's not like they've become less political or sort of apologetic about like some of the songs that they did. Like, no, absolutely not. They walk the talk still. It's how they are. What you see is what you get. When I saw them, we were lucky enough to open for them on Halloween in 2019, um, at the Mercury Lounge, which is crazy because it's so small, they—I mean, I was just like, "Wow, this is the real deal!" Like, this is—they've been like this for what, like, 20 plus years now, 25. And not the anti-flag is the only example. There's a lot of bands that do a great job of really, like, Mannequin Pussy is a band that has always been pretty political from the beginning, and I love them, and they've never been quiet about that. And, and I it's just think a matter of
0: time for them, I think. Sorry to butt in. I, I think that no, band is going to be very popular. It's just a matter of maybe a, a few more non-pandemic years.
1: They were about to do... It was about to happen for them, I think, because they opened yeah. for Best Coast, and then everything happened. I, I saw them for the first time at the Asbury Lanes in, like, 2012, I think, and it was just two of them. It was just Missy and... Uh, her drummer. And that was it. And I was like, I "I love this.
0: I did not know they have been around that long. I thought they were like 2015, 2016.
1: No, They've been around for a while. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they, their sound has, it's changed, but I don't think it's like, and in some ways it's gotten a little more polished, but the, the mood of their music has never changed. Yeah. It's always been. And, like, Missy screams a lot still, you know? Like, live, like, she spends half of it screaming. Like, that's, you know, it's not like she stopped screaming and started just, like, singing pretty songs. It's like the spirit of that band has been the same from the beginning. They're incredible. <laughs> I'm wearing a War on a Women war shirt. A War on Women shirt? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I thought so. I could see the war, but I, 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 I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah.
1: War on Women are another amazing example, I think, of a band that's really just... Been about one thing, not one thing, but they've been extremely clear about who they are from the beginning. Yeah, and I admire and again, that.
0: Unapologetic, you know, just unabashed, and and that's fantastic. And and I always any opportunity I have to put over anti flag as being special, I do because I think they are, and and I think mm-hmm. one of the ways in which they are is because they've turned around and helped smaller acts over the yeah. past twenty five years, whether it's with shows or tours or, or records you know, like you guys.
1: They didn't even I, ask for us. We were kind of given to them. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> when cool. When our our first record came out, uh, Neil um, from Anchorless put out our first record, but then he was like sort of winding the label down and he was like, I don't really have time to do this. Then so we asked AF to like do the sort of the legwork and they watched one of our music videos. I think he was with Chris Dose or something. And then they were like, yeah, sure. And then... They and we weren't even sure if they'd want to put out another record with us, but they said yeah, absolutely. And we were like, Wow, cool.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. What what led you to get involved specifically with local electoral politics in Kings County?
1: So I mean, I think a lot of us in 2016 were like, wow, we gotta get real we really need to start carrying a whole fucking lot more like immediately. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not like I never cared, but I didn't understand how important local politics are until probably that year, to be completely honest.
0: I would say for as mad as I was at people who were Trump supporters then, I was equally as mad at myself that night or the next day for being that fucking naive. I just I was like, I'm an I'm an overprivileged, naive piece of shit. I cannot fucking (laughs) believe I didn't see this coming. Like, motherfucker ruined my favorite Christmas movie, and then all these years later, he's president-elect. Get the fuck out of here. I was...
1: It was a really bad night.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people felt that way, too. It was like... It's one thing, but if you do something that angers yourself, you're just like,
1: man... It's but you, what you say about privilege is also true for me. Like I was privileged to not really have to feel the fallout a lot of, of a lot of the stuff that's been already that's sure. already been happening for a really really long time. I'm sorry. Sometimes Nassau Avenue is like a drag race. Um, oh, you're in you're in Greenpoint. I, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like many people after the 2016 election, I was like, wow, okay, I need to be way more awake and involved, like immediately. <laughs> and then I would say that when I got more involved on an actual organizing level was when my friend ran for state assembly and like one of my friends who I knew from that feminist organizing collective. Oh wow. uh, Yeah. I met her when we were doing feminist organizing together. And then 10 years later she was like, Hey, so I'm going to run for New York state assembly and it's my assembly district. And she's like, I'm running against this guy. He's been in office for almost 50 years. And like, since the seventies, like, I think I'm going to run against him. And I was like, fuck. Yeah, you are. Yes, you are. That's amazing. Yes, please. And like, you know, and the thing about our assemblyman was that he was fine. He was not the worst. He was not the best, but he had not, he had made choices that had directly contributed to a lot of what is not helpful and makes our lives a little bit worse in this area. Um, like, you know, he was totally cool with zoning, the water, the rezoning, the waterfront, like all the stuff that Bloomberg did, he went along with, and, um, he didn't really stand up for, there was just a lot he could have done that he didn't do. He sort of, he was sort of a go along, like he was like liberal, but, you know, um, but still took money from, Yeah. yeah, he was extremely safe. Um, and he took, he took, he took money from police unions and I mean, which is, was super normal until recently. And so when my friend was like, I'm going to run for office, I was like, I want to help you. And I learned so much, just uh, not only about local politics, but just about organizing in general. And, and she won. Oh, wow. <laughs> she what was won her, the her name? Her name's Emily Gallagher. She's really cool. We had like some, some of her uh, campaign, her, her partner made like these tote bags that were like the black flag logo, but Emily Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> which is extremely on brand for her, yeah. Because um, she's a punk. That's how I met. That's I met her like at a show. I'm pretty sure. And she ran for office, and now she's in Albany, or she's in Albany virtually. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. work, working on the New York State budget, which is late because Cuomo is in deep shit. Working on that really was really inspiring because I was like, oh wow, it really just takes a lot of people giving a shit about the same thing and educating themselves and actually listening to their neighbors and finding out what other people care about. And one thing I will say, and this might be kind of simplistic, but like I've talked to voters all over the country cause I did like some text banking for Bernie. And then I did some for like other campaigns. And then, you know, I, I helped. And right now I'm actually also volunteering on a city council campaign. Uh, one of my old roommates is running for city council and I was like, fuck yeah, you are.
0: Oh, that's awesome. And Who is
1: that? Her name is Elizabeth Adams, and uh, she's running in New York City Council District 33. Nice.
0: I have a friend, my best friend, Alita Gagarin, is running for New York City Council in 39, I believe.
1: Okay. What's her name again?
0: Alita Gagarin. She lives in Kew Gardens. And um, yeah, well, her husband ran for Congress last year. Uh, Cool. He tried to upend Grace Meng and her. Play it safe, laissez faire. The machine. I'm a Democrat. That's the
1: machine. Yeah,
0: yeah, the machine. That's the machine. Uh, And he did well, but I now that she's running for city council, I have confused myself as to uh, the borders of the district of New York Six and the borders of the district of her what would be you know her her area.
1: But I know it's Kew Gardens.
0: Yeah, it's it's Kew Gardens and part of Ridgewood, I think. And yeah. uh, Hugh Gardens Hills and maybe a little bit of Forest Hills as well, but anyway, yeah. But she's a punk, and you know she's my BFF, and I have way too many embarrassing stories about her that I will never <laughs> publicly share. But but yeah, that's yeah. That's, that's awesome, and and need, we need more people like that. We don't need everybody playing guitars.
1: Well, I think, and you people. can also you can do Some both people. too. Like, there's that's no true. reason. There is absolutely no reason that everyday normal people shouldn't be running for office. I mean, the reason that they don't is because it's prohibitively expensive most of the time, but in New York City, uh for the city council, they there is a matching program. So like if you, you know, you raise a certain amount of money, the city will do like 8 to 1, which is very helpful. Basically like if you are a teacher, there is no reason you shouldn't run for office. There is nothing about people who are currently in office that makes them uniquely qualified to be in office all you need to be is a person who lives in the neighborhood who cares and wants to help like that's it you know career politicians shouldn't be a thing in my opinion
0: (laughs) no i I agree i agree as well and it's interesting you said that i was doing some phone banking for mel's campaign um Mm -hmm. and i really enjoyed it and now i'm starting to do it for Alita's campaign and it feels good, and it's something that isn't you know again, we all kind of get zoomed out of, of all of this and so many phone calls and you miss that human interaction. but when you reach a voter that genuinely cares and wants someone to care about them and you can make them believe in you know your your friend who you know held my hair back as I was throwing up while we were in college so that's a that's a big thing you know that that means a lot, and it makes me feel really good especially in such a a dark and trying time as this year has been, you know.
1: One thing I learned when I've been talking to voters, not only like in New York, but also over the country is that, and I was, I started to say this before and it seems a little simplistic, but like essentially we kind of all want the same things. And because everything has just gotten so fucked up and because we've been, I mean, I don't want to get too like uh, tinfoil hat here, but like we've been sold capitalism as a thing that works and it kind of doesn't, And we've been, not we meaning me, but like many people have been led to believe that accepting help from the government is wrong or bad or something, or, or that, you know, socialized medicine or social programs are are giving up. Like the whole bootstraps mentality is like really toxic. I'm sure you know that Um, it's, but so like, so when there's someone in office or who someone trying to be in office, who's like, Hey, I want to help you that is so threatening to the other side because then they'll lose all their power, their corporate donors. Like, you know, they don't, they don't want that. So they will message so effectively that the person that you're talking to who could absolutely use Medicaid is like, I would never take Medicaid. I, you know, I pay for everything myself. I'm, I pulled my, you know, I did everything for myself. Why should other people get Medicaid? And it's like,
0: I won't live in a socialist country.
1: Right. And it's like
0: that same bullshit.
1: Well, and it, it sucks because the thing is, it's just a branding problem really at this point because yeah. it's like so- socialism. So Medicare is socialism. Uh, <laughs> like it is.
0: The post office is socialism. The
1: post office is socialism. <laughs> yeah. uh, anything that the government runs and that your tax dollars pay for is socialism. <laughs> so, yeah. The yeah. interstate system. Yeah. yeah. That's I, the, I the national parks. I mean, and so like I ended up talking to people where I was sometimes able to be like, okay, but – you want this thing, right? Like, here's why that thing could happen and also why your taxes won't go up because rich people should get taxed. <laughs> like,
0: Yeah, it's like, I feel like the messaging on the right is just because a lot of it is based around fear and lies and glad handing that the mm-hmm. messaging kind of cuts through a little bit quicker it than does. the work that we do on the left. And so in those moments presumably i i know it's happening for alita and it happened for mel when they were still when they're able to, to talk to people in their community safely at a distance with masks and all that but for mm-hmm. me on the phone it's it's a it's a big deal when i'm able to kind of slice through that cacophony and help someone understand that like i i we all win we're, we're all going to do better with yeah with this this idea and i'm not here to sell you something that is untrue for the purpose of you know, my friend becoming a rich and famous person. Like, that's just not what what we're doing. But, like, it, it feels so good when you're able to get through that
1: mud. Grassroots organizing, yeah, yeah, I mean, it is hard because people will hang up on you or tell you to go away or, you know, be rude. But, like, grassroots organizing is super effective. You just have to get a lot of people to do it. And I think that we're in a place now where more people are like, oh, shit, yeah, I should – I should do that. And again, it's super privileged. And I mean, there's so much that I'm I'm not saying like that I could talk about. But like, just for example, like I remember speaking to a woman who, um, a black woman who lived in my neighborhood because I was outside uh, doing, a, they call it like voter education, like the day of the election. You, you yeah. Really, you're just giving people, your, <laughs> you know, your candidates. Lit. And this woman was like, yeah, I don't vote. And I was like, why? And she was like, nothing changes for me. You know, nothing changes for me. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really see the point. And I was like, that makes, I mean, I get it. It was like a real, it was a good moment of truth for me because I was like, we have been doing a disservice to so many people for so long that some of them are just out. Like they're out like this, the government will never help them. No one gives a shit about them and the city council. Like it's, it's done. Their ch- the, the, anyone's chance to like have that person believe in the government is it's just gone. And, mm-hmm. and that's a bummer that really sucks. You know, I hope that we're able to see less people who feel like that in the next 50 years. But like, it was a moment of reality for me. I was just like, yeah, that makes sense that you would not trust any of us.
0: Well kudos to you for the good work that you're doing because You too. Well thank you. But yeah, you know working and then volunteering on top of that, it's it, it takes time and you know it it can be tiring, but the belief in in the real change, you know, kind of back to the beginning of the conversation like <laughs> it, with with you know Hunter's dad. That's that's a good start for sure, but yeah. it's important that I think our generation is making the generation younger than us aware that it's not daunting to get involved in local politics.
1: Also, the younger generation is like the women that are running my friend's city council campaign are like 22. (laughs) They are so smart. (laughs) I'm 35. And so, like, we keep saying, like, I have to keep telling them, you don't understand. When I was 22, I was a ding dong. I had no idea what was going on. I can't. I'm in so much admiration. But also, like, they didn't have a choice. They grew up in a terrifying... I mean, it was already terrifying. Like, you know, 9-11 was, like, really at the beginning of my adulthood. So, you know, these kids are, are... getting politicized or not even getting politicized but like aware of all the really messed up shit happening from the time that they can like look at their phone
0: yeah i would say it's like a political astuteness like they have an understanding for the process they have an understanding for the debate and a lot of them have an understanding of what's bullshit i feel like they they, really they're not as they're not as easily convinced of of falsehoods as they are not no it's, our, it's inc- our parents age
1: people you know like these kids wouldn't have voted for ralph nader i'm sure i did that at one point <laughs> you know like because i was a dumbass <laughs> sorry ralph nader thank you for seatbelts.
0: i have a few listeners that are going to be really pissed that you said that for sure because they're still diehard nader people I
1: don't think he's a bad person.
0: Oh, like, no, I, no. But I, I fuck with them all the time about that yeah. shit. I, yeah, I still kind of go back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I just the only other thing I wanted to ask you, because I, I found it really interesting, but then I, I guess it, you alluded to it earlier that it's not totally out yet, but you have a podcast that you do with your friends. It seems really funny and kind of silly, but it's all about legisl- re-legislating the narrative around <laughs> the Hold Steady being just a dude dad bar rock band but it's actually a band that should be best enjoyed by everybody they'll
1: have that correct yeah that's perfect that's exactly it which makes me feel good because you know we struggled with the messaging at first we and the thing that sucks is like it's been an anchor distribution hell for like a long time
0: yeah, yeah. so
1: we have some episodes ready to go but um until anchor decides we are allowed to be on itunes or in our apple podcast or whatever no one's going to hear it but
0: yeah anyway i think i I, you know i think i found like a a preview or a teaser yeah
1: Yeah. the trailer exists because it's on anchor and that's it and i i literally check the app all the time just to be like is it on
0: (laughs) well tell me a little bit a little bit more about it because i'm about to be a dad and
1: yeah i do love the hold steady
0: so yeah you know i agree it should be for everybody
1: the whole city is for you. They're for everybody. Yeah. And you know, at the end of the show, Craig always says we are all the whole city." You know, there are a lot of different reasons why we started saying the whole city is for women, which was kind of a joke. Like we started saying it at shows and uh, my friends, Kaylee and Desi, I know them from loving this band. I've been a fan since like 2007. We just started using it as like a hashtag, like the whole city is for women. <laughs> um, you know, also, um, and it doesn't mean it's only for us. Uh, It's just, it is for everybody who wants them to be for them. And the funny thing about the, the dad rock or sort of the bar band like narrative is that like, they haven't been a bar band for a really long time. Like their last couple albums are like really dark and like very adult and like, they're great, but they're not like party anthem albums. Like that was the last, I mean, I would say like boys and girls in America was the party album. And then, after that, they have not, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they just haven't. And, um, so I think that there was like the, the way that they were portrayed in the media when they first kind of hit, just kind of stuck for a really long time. And the whole study is for women. The whole study is for women means a lot of different things. It means that you are welcome at these shows, no matter who you are, as long as you're cool and nice to people. We have, (laughs) we go off about like, well, this is a, it's a whole study lyric, but like, no one wins at violent shows. Like <laughs> if you're at a show to just like beat up other people, like get some therapy, maybe go home. Like not, not the place. And just that ver- like that
0: verse where he tears down Ray Capo and the whole. Yeah. Now now another culture. I was just dying. Oh God.
1: I um, yeah, but that's that's really the point of it. I mean, we talk about like why our origin stories and like why we love the band so much, and um, we do. An, we're going to have an episode where we just break down Teeth Dreams track by track because uh, one of us is extremely protective of Teeth Dreams, which is much maligned in some ways. Basically, it's just about how this band is for everyone, and hopefully, by demonstrating how much it means to us, it will become apparent to other people that this band is for you too.
0: I can't think of a band that is more representative and synonymous with my time as a wild twenty-something living in New York City than the the Hold Steady. Same. There, there was a bar on Avenue D that the bass player used to ten bar and hi-fi. What was it? Hi-fi. I can't. Rem- I can't. Re- it felt like it was really far. Maybe
1: it, I'm pretty maybe sure it's hi-fi. It was, hi-fi. It was okay. Galen. Galen worked there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just got really excited because I miss high five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't
0: remember it because he would get me so fucked up like <laughs> all the time. And then there was a bar in, you know, kind of equally there was a bar in uh, Barm Hill or Cobble Hill or whatever. One of, one of the guys from Pela who became Augustine's
1: mm. would work. Oh my God, Pela. I haven't and thought about that, them in a long time. That dude got
0: me fucked up like all the time, and I and I was like, I'm just, I just wanted one, you know. But I just I loved those bands so much that I would just kind of talk to them about their bands while they were attending par. They probably found me annoying. But and even when I moved to Los Angeles, the whole city, it was right when Stay Positive came out. And they did a lot of touring then. And yes, they did a they lot did. of uh interesting tours that brought them, you know, obviously they're not gonna do a national tour and not play Los Angeles, but mm-hmm. I was living in Hollywood at the time and it was just the perfect medicine you know, to me missing New York and, and adjusting to life in LA was to see them two or three times a year. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that that brand, but they brought me a lot of happiness and at times, certainly when I needed it and yeah, I, uh, I love them for it. What's your favorite record? If I had to put you on the spot now, what's your favorite whole state record?
1: I think it's probably Separation Sunday, which is a pretty popular choice, but it was the first one I heard. And it's still the one that beginning to end just feels the most cohesive for me. It's, it's really hard for me to be objective about them at all. <laughs> I, there are things, And I like the album, the ranking of the albums changes for me all the time. You know, Heaven is Whenever was not well received really when it came out. Um, it was right after Franz uh, left for a few years and, uh, they were kind of on their own. And not that they were on their own. There were plenty of capable songwriters in that band. But um, that album, all of their albums are kind of autobiographical for me in some way. As you said, like, you know, you think of them as like your time in New York. Like Boys and Girls in America is like I moved to New York. It was that year. Yeah. I mean, I moved there in 2007. So it, I think it came out technically in 2006. But I moved to New York in 2007.
0: Were you at the show at the band shell at Prospect Park? In the summer, no, of no, I wasn't.
1: No, yeah. I wasn't. That was legendary. I heard about it. <laughs>
0: that was great. I was in. I was so fucked up and depressed at that point, <laughs> but I went to that show by myself, and that was. I just they lifted me out of that funk. It was tremendous. You could do so it like, yourself. Yeah, Heaven Is Whenever is my favorite record of theirs. Yeah, and really. Yeah, when they when that record came out, they played a somewhat stripped down show at the grammy museum theater which is maybe a 75 person
1: i remember screening room
0: but franz being gone was noticeable you know with for the performance but it really put a different light on those songs that made me fall in love with it and Mm -hmm. i still think that's the one i find myself going back to the most
1: it has this really big sparkly sound that i like a lot
0: yeah and it doesn't start with a banger it starts with a little bit of a slow burner you Mm -hmm. know and i'm just like Let's let's get it. Let's get it. Are you the staunch defender of Teeth Dreams that you referred to earlier?
1: I'm not. My friend Kaylee is the staunch Teeth Dreams defender, but I do like it a lot. And I think it gets a bad rap. The only thing like, oh, my God. Like, I mean, that's that album is like the first time I think I heard Craig be like late stage capitalism is kind (laughs) of (laughs) bad. Yeah. And when we when we did our track by track, we were just like just from the beginning, you're like, this is not a party record. This is not happy. We are not happy. But for my friend, I think it was also, similarly with us, it was autobiographical for her. like It was an album that was there for her when she was going through a really hard time in her life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say that uh, for me, Heaven Is Whenever came out uh, around when I got sober. Uh, So things weren't great (laughs) right before that. And that album was there for me in that time. Even though it also, for a while, I couldn't really listen to it because I was like, ugh. (laughs) But... um, But
0: now I love it. Yes. Love talking about the Hold Steady. If you have a favorite Hold Steady record, I would love to know what it is. Because I will defend Heaven is Whenever, till the cows come home. Heidi picks Separation Sunday. That's also good. Also, we talked about a bar in this conversation where their bass player used to get me way too incredibly drunk, and I remembered what it was. I think it was called Mickey's Blue Room or Mickey Blue Eyes or something on Avenue D. If anybody out there in podcast land can correct me on that, it'd be greatly appreciated. Send me an email, thebermanhour at gmail.com, or send me a DM at thebermanhour on Instagram. Thanks again to Heidi and her band Early Riser for putting out such a great record and taking some time out of their busy schedule to talk to me. And also, thank you very much to our sponsors, New Wave, who are bringing us the best coffee on the marketplace Go to newwave.co slash Berman and get 10% off. Give it a try. It helps you. It helps them. It helps the podcast. Let's get it. All right. I'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Peace.